this is great for behavior stuff because during the pandemic, cigarette and tobacco tax revenue soared. People stuck at home that hadn't smoked in decades picked up the habit again, which is completely contrary to all the medical advice, particularly as we were in a lung-based pandemic. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to a second hour of a thoroughly exciting personal wealth coach uh, radio program. Very thorough. You don't you you don't you don't sound very enthusiastic about that. I, I should say it like this. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coach. No, nope, you're never going to make it. You, like you never NPR. make it as a ni- as a 1920s or 30s radio announcer. You're right. You're right. Who ladies was that bald man? Bo- ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another exciting adventure in Radio Land. As if there's a land in the ether. There are, of course. Yeah. Is there an ether in the ether is the question. That, that, is, that is a rather uh, good question, as a matter of fact. Yes. So we are back. Well, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we talk about things to do with the economy, and we have a bunch of disclosures to disclose. First disclosure, we are the Personal Wealth Coach, and the Personal Wealth Coach is not only the name of the riveting program. Riveting in the meaning- sense that you are is hot steel being used to pull you and hold you in place. Right. Yes. Um, it is also the name of an investment advisory firm headquartered in Salado, Texas, and registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which in no way applies their approval or disapproval or anything else. It just means independent investment advisors that are uh, fiduciaries like us that have more than $100 million under management have to register with the SEC. So that's really all it means. Yes. They're very clear that they don't imply any uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, or anything else with digits on your hand. Right. Hopefully. The, the commissioner will deny any responsibility. And this message will self-destruct. Right. It just did. Just it's did. Gone. It's gone. No, no yeah. longer around. All right. Uh, next one is that um, the, we just said that we're giving fiduciary advice registered with the SEC, but we can't do that on the radio. So what we're saying on the radio is education. Why can't we do fiduciary advice on the radio? Privacy rules, actually having to know exactly who we're talking to, all that good stuff. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait there a minute. might be nobody listening, in which case we could give fiduciary advice and not in violation of any privacy rules because nobody could Pe- hear us. People listen to us overseas. And in that case, it'd be privacy rules. That would be privacy rules. So we need to be very careful. Does about that, that mean right? that we are privateers? We're or privacy pirates. mongers. We're privacy mongers. Very private. Right. Okay. Uh, you want to give the deem? I, I saved it for you. Well, we have this. This is an educational program, not an advisory program. Um, you know, and, and the educational information that we have obtained has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Or unsaid information. We really do not guarantee the completeness of unsaid information. 
there. I think we can guarantee that unsaid information is completely unsaid. Uh, but I, I would hesitate to guarantee that because uh, someone might say it. Right. Got it. Yes. One more thing. We don't get paid to do this program and we don't pay to do this program. We have been volunteering our Saturday mornings, me since 1998, you since 1996, me being Jake, the other bald guy, Jeff. Uh, so we've been doing this a long time. It's not a paid commercial program. We do as a firm buy advertising on the station, KTEM, but the advertising is all for the radio program. And at the end of the program, we do give our contact information. That's about the extent of this. We've been doing this a long, long time. And we still had one question remaining of the three. We spent a whole hour talking about two questions. It's, we, we, we like to talk sometimes. Yeah. We've got a, another message from Inquisitor John, another picture of the Wall Street Journal. An overlapping picture talking about something that the SEC just announced. Curbs on ESG funds advance is the uh, headline. ESG. What is ESG? Um, ecological social governance. It's something that Morningstar, the third-party rating agency, came up with as a score. The SEC just said, we're going to add this term and a couple others to what we call the naming rule. And the question from John is, how are stock categories or names policed? And he's got quotes around policed. That is Poorly. Uh, poorly, yeah. Right. Um, the name of a mutual fund. So this, this rule originated in 2001. It's called the names rule. Why 2001? Because in the year 2000, we had a stock market crash, big one. And so regulators get really enthusiastic of making new rules right after a crash. Well, this is a rule that probably needed to be made. And the rule was, if you call your mutual fund a tax-free bond fund, well, you need to have at least 80% of your fund holdings in tax-free bonds. If you call yourself a bond fund, well, you need to have if your name is the XYZ bond fund, well, you need to have 80% of your stuff invested in bonds. Same with if you call it a stock fund. Um, but they really stuck to pretty generalized names. The new rule that's been proposed, um, and it's a proposal still, it's asking for public input and so on, is to cover funds that suggest a focus on ESG, or on strategies like growth or value. Um, a, merely, a fund that merely considers ESG factors alongside, but no more than other inputs. So what does that mean? Mutual funds often say, oh, well, of course we look at ESG when we're investing. But if they're not investing in 80% focused on only ESG, they shouldn't be able to name themselves an ESG fund. That seems pretty simple. Um, value and growth. Value is, uh, those are both terms given to stocks. So a growth-oriented stock fund, if they call themselves the XYZ growth fund, they should be 80% invested in what people would consider growth and vice versa for value, although that's going to be hard. So the answer on how is it policed is poorly. 
I'm going to go out on a crazy limb. I'm actually going to name a company here. Are you, are you along with me on this? I'm listening. There was a paper that we read regularly that was write, written in 1952 by Harry Markowitz called Portfolio Selection. And in that paper, he proposed graphing risk and return. Uh, risk was measured in standard deviation and return was measured in the growth, the, the return over a period of time of uh, a portfolio or an index. And over the years, that's been rearranged, uh, kind of switched the X and Y axis to make it easier to understand and so on. But the idea is that if you look at this graph and you look at the different quadrants as like a direction, so the southwest and the northwest, and the northwest area of that graph would be extreme return with no risk. And the reality is that doesn't exist. And that's part of what the paper was written to prove is that you can't have... Uh, high returns with no risk. That's some kind of a scam. And there are companies that refer to themselves as, for instance, the Northwest Quadrant. Now, if you're not an economist nerd like us, you haven't a clue what they're talking about. They may be from Seattle, for all you know. But I, I have, for many years, said that's just absurd. Why can they get away with calling themselves that? Well, because we have freedom of speech. And as long as most people don't know what they mean by that, it's not even fraud. If I came up and I said, these are certified 100% filigobobble uh, bracelets, you don't know what that means, so it's not really fraud for me to say it. But if you know what it means and it's got a valid meaning, then it's fraud. And so this is, this is where common understanding comes in. So names getting policed is difficult. What is fraud? If I say... There's a guarantee this thing will always go up and it doesn't. Well, that's some form of lie. And if I benefited from it, then it's fraud. So do mutual funds benefit from their names? Yes. Uh, are they allowed to call themselves a lot of things that aren't necessarily true today? Like we're the XYZ ESG fund. And people go, oh, ESG, I have an ESG. And they may have one, one stock holding an ESG and they just consider it when they're making their purchases. So the SEC says, wait, we need to increase our regulation on naming. More than that, they're saying, since there is no official definition of what ESG is, there's no official definition of what environmentally sensitive is. They want the funds, if they're going to say they're an ESG fund, to give a definition of ESG in the prospectus and say, this is the kind of companies we invest in because they meet the following criteria specifically, which is going to drive some people crazy. For example, several major oil companies yeah. were listed in, in, in indices as ESG. In other words, they're environmentally sensitive, uh, helpful, wonderful companies social, that are helping the environment the as they context, drill for oil. The, you know, the social context with air quotes around it is equality in the workplace and equal opportunity across the board. And then governance is both at the country level and at the corporate level, how the decisions are made and if they are in line with kind of this a uh, more open form of capitalism, this this warmer form of capitalism. And you just said this, Aramco has been listed as in ESG funds regularly as a foreign company or an emerging markets ESG because for... I have not figured that one out uh, at all. 
for I don't know. I I mean the social I mean, governance. They don't even allow women to drive in that country, and Saudi Aramco certainly doesn't say we disagree with it. They'll, no, they're run by the same guy that says women aren't allowed to drive. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a problem with the company itself, but it's not ESG. So. If, if you're investing in an ESG fund and you think, okay, I'm being socially conscious, I'm being really good for the environment and all kinds of things, I, there is no definition of ESG right now. So it's probably wise to dig down in there and look at those individual stocks. And then once you get to the individual stocks, how do you know if they're ESG? And There and is no clear charge? rating on this. This is the thing. Nobody. Nobody's in charge of these terms. The, the term bear market, the term bull market, the term recession. Well, somebody's sort of in charge of that. But they were never appointed as that role. The conference board is the one that says whether or not we're in a recession or not. Well, who told them that they should be the ones that said that? Well, the, the conference board did. It's not even a governmental organization. It's just a group that says, yep, we're in a recession now, or no, we're not. And we've all agreed, okay, if they said it, it's, it's correct. Well, sort of, we've all agreed. There was no like survey with signatures or anything like that. Definitions don't get policed well. Even the definition of what is value and what is growth. I mean, just by the, just as a side note, I'm not knocking the conference board for setting themselves up that way. That's the way dictionaries have done it for forever. Nobody appointed a dictionary and said, you're the ones in charge of making definitions. They did it themselves. And then people used it. And so that gave it some merit. It's belief. And I think we covered um, that. Let's talk about the economy for just a minute. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of indicators out there. And um, the stock market has basically been ignoring the economy and looking at the market and saying, okay, interest rates are going up. There in the past have been recessions when interest rates go up. Therefore, there will be another recession, which, by the way, is not rational. Not at all. Um, the economy in the United States is going like mad. Now, this is not true across the rest of the world. And I'm kind of summarizing here. We can talk about the details. China is experiencing a significant decline in all of its economic indicators. I mean, literally everything from electric usage, the things that we can track to some degree outside of official government statements. And even now the official government statements are warning of a, uh, of a decline in the Russian, in the, in the Chinese economy. Uh, why? Mainly because of COVID lockdowns. And they're still trying to fight to make a zero COVID country when COVID is running wild in their country right now, um, I saw numbers that indicated 200 million people in China are still in lockdown. I saw other numbers that said 330 million people were in lockdown. So it's kind of hard to tell how many people are yeah. not working and they're staying at home in the, China, but it is hurting their economy. The measurements of how many people are in lockdown are not coming from the government. They're not coming from the Chinese government. They're coming from people attempting to measure it through TikTok and other social media apps, Weibo, and um, by calling individual businesses to see who's open. So it's not a very accurate, and when you've got a margin of error of 100 million people, you know it's a big deal. So, so China is the second largest economy in the, in the world. And unfortunately or fortunately or however you want to look at it, the Chinese economy has an effect on us. If they slow down production, which they have done, it will ultimately result in production in the United States slowing down because many things that we make in the United States have something in it from China. It's that simple. Uh, and I think it's part of why 
we saw one of the reasons last week that the market was bobbing downward pretty intensely is both Walmart and Target came in with significantly lower earnings for the previous quarter than the estimates suggested they would have. If you dig, and we mentioned this in the newsletter, but if you dig deeper into this, you find out their revenue was up, their same store sales were up, all the normal things that are positive were going on there, but their profits were down. Why were their profits down? We talked about this last hour. They had built up a, they had paid a premium and, 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 and bypassed in many cases, the regular supply chains and got a lot of stuff to sell that people were buying during the pandemic. And then people started shifting their buying patterns to some other stuff. And people are shifting their buying patterns. They're still, they're still pretty heavily into uh, buying stuff or goods, as it's officially known, uh, so that the, um, the, uh, the, the index that we have the, the, from purchasing managers indicates that the, that's up around 56, which is a really high number. Anything below 50 indicates contraction. Above 50 indicates growth. Anything above fifty five is probably not sustainable for the long time. So we're, we're term. So we're still win, really into buying goods, but the services index that had dropped on its belly during the pandemic during during the pandemic is coming back very nicely. And if you've been to a movie theater or to a restaurant recently, you will understand that they are packed. Uh, they're doing very very well. So we got this shift going on that resulted in Walmart and Target having too much inventory. Now, is that a good thing, a bad thing? What is it? Well, the market said, whoop, if Walmart is going down, then the consumer must be stopping spending, which means the recession is coming. Therefore, let's sell stocks. But then along came Dollar General and a lot of other stores that said, and, and uh, uh, the big box home improvement stores, uh, home, for example. Home Depot and Lowe's. Right. And they said, we're doing just fine. Not only are our sales up, so are our profits considerably more than you thought they were going to be. Macy's came along with higher profits. The reason was Walmart and Target were very efficient at figuring ways to get stuff from overseas that other people weren't able to get. So they did better during the recession. Now they've got this buildup of stuff that they're going to have to sell at a loss. Now, this is an interesting point. Inflation is starting to come down. You read the newsletter, you can get all the gory details on this, but inflation is starting to come down. The the PCE, which is the Fed's and my preferred measure of inflation, is running between 5 and 6%, on, depending on how you look at it right now, for one year. It's only up 0.2% for one month, which would indicate that we're back in the 2% range for the year. Now, what is that? why is that important? Inflation is probably going to come down more. Why is it going to come down more? Walmart and Target have a bunch of stuff they need to sell at a loss. They're going to have sales to get rid of that stuff. That's going to cause the price of things to come down. Oil is still the big question mark in this thing, though, by the way. And I'll let you roll for a while. Yeah, I'm going to do a comparison here. This is something that I do occasionally. Every few months, I'll pop in with some tax revenue information on what's going on in the world. And Texas is a really good indicator. It helps that we're based in Texas. Uh, but it's a, a fantastic indicator of what's happening because it's a sales tax base rather than an income tax base. So you can watch what's actually occurring from a consumer perspective much better. Uh, income tax bases, you don't really know what people are spending their money on, and they come in about once a year, and it tells you whether people's incomes are up or not for a given year. 
Sales taxes are amazing to say, what are people spending on? Are they spending more on it or less on it? So the state of Texas, year over year, so from this point last year, is up about 22% in its sales tax revenue. That's massive. Overall, tax revenue for Texas is up 30.6%. So it's got some main areas that they show. And Texas, by the way, has got a, does a great job in a few things. One of those things that is absolutely amazing is they have a, uh, the comptroller here has a monthly state revenue page that shows you what the revenue is. It's based on being transparent. There are a bunch of main tax areas and the vast majority of them are way, way up. There are three areas where the tax revenue is down and that's as indicative as what's up as to say what's going on in the country and in the state. Uh, Something that's down just a tiny amount. Revenue on this type of tax is down about one and a half percent for the year. And that's motor fuel taxes. That may be a little bit of a shock. What? How is that? It's based on a per gallon purchase. So we're evidently not buying as many gallons of gas as we did at this point last year. Just a little piece of fascinating item. Texas is a big state. So you tend to see more traveling in Texas than in other places. Uh, and we see that revenue dropping. Uh, another place that's down these, uh, is cigarette and tobacco taxes. This is great for behavior stuff because during the pandemic, cigarette and tobacco tax revenue soared. People stuck at home that hadn't smoked in decades picked up the habit again, which is completely contrary to all the medical advice, particularly as we were in a lung-based uh, pandemic. But it happened. Well, now we've got revenue dropping almost 11% on cigarette and tobacco taxes year over year. That says something about our behavior. And then utility taxes are down 11% as well year over year. So we're paying less on, wait a minute, think about that. Well, it's per kilowatt hour, not based on a sales tax on it. So it's not based on how much you're paying. It's based on how much you're using. We're using less energy this year than we did last year. Just more stuff to, to comprehend as we come along. Now let's talk about the really, really big improvements. So hotel occupancy tax is up 62%. People are using hotels a lot more. That's significant. Um, 95% improvement in oil production tax. 95% up. But that's not even the big gain. Natural gas production tax revenue is up 192%. That is huge. That's double what it was last year and puts it double alcoholic beverage taxes plus some. It's two and a half times what we're paying for utility and taxes on alcoholic beverages. That says some things about what's happening in in the economy. More hotel use, less motor traffic. Motor vehicle sales and rental taxes are up about 19%. So the, the price of the vehicles are up about that same amount. That makes sense. Um, the price of the rest of the stuff is not up 22%. So we're buying a lot more stuff than we used to. 
And that's a lot of numbers being thrown out. The the basis for that is just saying that there's a lot of growth happening. That when sales tax revenue is up 22% for a year and inflation during that time period is up about 8%, well, the rest of that is just pure growth. So that's like a 14% growth year over year on what we're buying. We're buying a lot more stuff. And that comes back to what's going on in in the big world out there, we're not seeing a slowdown in spending. We're seeing an increase in spending. That rarely is the beginning of a recession. And that's kind of good information there. Now I've drubbed that one to death and you can go for yep. a while now. Well, there's the indicators continue to say that the high rate of growth that we saw as we came out of the pandemic last year is slowing. And thank God for that. It was going too fast. Anytime that you see the uh, purchasing managers indexes above 55, that is A, not sustainable, and B, tends to suggest we're going to have inflation. When you say it's not sustainable, it's literally that. It means that they don't have the capacity to keep producing at the factories at that right. rate without things breaking. And people and burning people, out. Yeah, and people burning out, yeah. So the economy is running along, has been running along in overheated mode, which is why the Federal Reserve, by the way, announced this week, or they released their minutes this week, and they and there's a consensus on the Federal Reserve Board for half point raises in interest rates for several uh, meetings going forward. And so we're going to see interest rates, short-term interest rates come up pretty quickly. There's also a consensus at the Federal Reserve that they need to reduce their balance sheet, which is a weird concept. When they reduce their balance sheet, what they're doing is allowing the bonds they hold, many of those are government bonds, they're mortgage bonds, they're lots of bonds. They allow them to mature without buying new ones. And what that does is it effectively takes money out of the economy. In other words, they're interested in shrinking the money supply. They're interested in uh, in raising short-term rates. This is already having the desired effect. The, the issue is there is a natural decrease in these events, in, in, in the purchasing and so on, that's going to hit at the same time and, and is already starting to show. Um, as people in the last month uh, have spent more money than they made, so they're beginning to draw down on their savings. Uh, there is still a savings, positive savings rate in the United States of 4.4%, but it was up much higher recently. So what we're seeing is the economy naturally beginning to slow its growth, not slow in the sense of go into reverse, but grow less fast. And the Federal Reserve is also applying the brakes to slow it down to reduce inflation. The fear in the markets, the, the general fear in the markets, and at least among the professionals, is that the combination of the natural slowing of the economy and the Fed tapping on the brakes could easily cause the Fed to go too far, which they've done several times in the past century, to say the least. Um, on the other hand, the Federal Reserve seems to be intensely aware of that issue, and they have suggested again and again and again that they have no intention of putting the economy into reverse. Their intention is simply to go to neutral. So what's neutral? And they're going to think this is crazy. Given the inflation environment that we're seeing right now, neutral is probably about a 3% short-term rate. Now, short-term rates are still very, very tiny, 1% range. When they get up and around the 3% range, that's neutral in this economy, which means we're going to see a lot of interest rate increases going forward. 
and it will slow things down. What does slow things down mean? We're probably going to see unemployment go up. Unemployment is sitting down there at record lows. And if the economy isn't growing as fast, there's going to be fewer people working, fewer people spending money. That's the reality of how to slow the economy down. And it's got to happen or we get runaway inflation. And it's a very careful balancing act. I think we've got a good Federal Reserve to deal with this. We managed to dodge the bullet and not put what I'm going to put in quotation marks as crazies, end quote, uh, on the Federal Reserve, although there were a couple of them nominated. Um, and, and we're moving forward, I think, in a, in a solid fashion. Now, again, I want to mention something that I think is very important to, the, to, the, to everybody in the United States. The United States economy has a tremendous amount of momentum. It has a tremendous amount of fuel left. We still have record-breaking quantities of cash in personal hands across the country, both in terms of dollars and in terms of percentages of income and so on. The rest of the world is slipping into recession, it looks like. They're headed towards recession. Obviously, there's an invasion going on. There's something else going on. We mentioned this in the newsletter in passing, but it's important to understand. The price of grains to eat, wheat specifically, globally has risen 40%. Now, that means your bread when you go to the supermarket is likely to be at least 40% more expensive now than it was a year ago. But there That's, are places in the world where the the cost of food amounts to like 40% of their yeah. income and it's now like 60 or 70% of their income. And this is this is as Jake has mentioned this in the past, this is what kicked off the revolutions in the Arab Spring, the price of bread going up. Um, this is what caused rice, Libya and Egypt and, and Tunisia and the, basically the whole northern coast of Africa had governments change because the price got too high on bread. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the price of rice is not going up and the places where rice is routinely eaten seem to be doing fairly well. However, there's going to be instability around the world because the price of food is going up dramatically. Um, and then it's compounded. Not only do we have uh, a large percentage of the, of the grains and, by the way, also cooking oil provided by Ukraine and Russia being cut off, we have another problem. There is a drought, a major drought going on in India, and India has stopped exporting wheat in their major wheat producer too. And there's a big drought going on in the north uh, north Midwest of the United States mm -hmm. that is yeah. lowering production as well. I and mean, that means that the farmers there are going to get really good prices, but it's still not enough wheat to go around. They're going to get really good prices, but the problem is their cost of fertilizer and fuel has gone up so much that they're not going to make a lot of money. They're, matter of fact, they're going to lose money in many cases. This is, this is a complex world we live in. And we should, we, we, it'd be nice if it were more simple, but it's not. And that's a fact. There's another kind of ancillary issue going on that I really was kind of unaware of until I visited Santa Fe. There is a huge, major drought going on in the Western United States. I mean, when I talk about huge, major, climatologists are referring to it as the worst drought in 1,200 years. So yeah. how do we know how bad droughts were 1,000 years ago? We can look at tree rings and we can say how bad the droughts were and how long they lasted and how severe they were. A thousand years ago. And the last drought we had this bad was about 1,200 years ago, and it caused a major shift of people in the southwestern United States. It wasn't the southwestern it's, United States at the time, but what is now the southwestern United States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It caused the people who uh, were the referred to as the Anasazi 
to abandon their gigantic building houses in in uh, Mesa Verde and other places and move east where there was more rain and they moved into the Rio Grande Valley and they're still there. And in the Rio Grande Valley, they're experiencing a huge drought right now. Uh, there are places where in the, in the Western, in West Texas, where water has always flowed, that it is not flowing. I mean, since people have been there, there's always been a stream in a certain place That's that comes of, out of springs and it's gone. Yeah. That it's will just gone now. absolutely affect wheat production and corn production. Mm-hmm. So these things are going on. And, and why do we mention those? If you're thinking as I once did thinking about moving and buying a piece of land in West Texas and retiring there or something like that, there is a problem. And the problem is West of here, west of central Texas, out into New Mexico and Arizona, there is a distinct, very real threat of running out of water. And this includes California. Lake Mead supplies a lot of the water for Southern California, and Lake Mead is the lowest it has been since it was filled, and it is declining. The snowfall and the rainfall in the Rockies that fill it have been declining dramatically. Is there any immediate end in sight for this? Not according to the climatologists. They don't see any immediate end in sight. The circumstances that are causing the extreme dryness in the southwestern United States, and for that matter, the western United States, which is why we've had the big forest fires, isn't likely to go away. Uh, It's warmer. It's significantly warmer in the wintertime out there. It is hotter in the summertime, and the rainfall is less, and the ground is becoming more and more arid. And here's the problem. Even if you get a lot of rain, and your ground moisture has gone away, as it has, for instance, in much of New Mexico, the rain doesn't do much good unless you have it for months and months and months. It just gets soaked up and doesn't do anything beyond getting soaked up. It doesn't raise a water table. It just gets soaked into the dirt. And doesn't go anywhere, except to evaporate after the rains go away. So we've got, there's some major changes going on in the planet. There's some major changes going on in the United States. The good news is, in the United States proper, our economies in the various regions are generally doing very, very well. Entrepreneurialism has hit records. People are, st- and entrepreneurism is a prime indicator of where the economy will be years from now. The more new businesses that actually hire people that start up, and there's record numbers of new businesses opening up and hiring people. Yeah. Um, Certain businesses have a propensity to hire more people, and that's the ones that are opening up very fast. Uh, Obviously, entrepreneurism can include one person deciding to go to work on his own. That's not a big deal. Yeah, we we really haven't seen this kind of business production, new businesses being birthed since right after World War II, which happened for obvious reasons as people came home and said, I'm going to do what I always wanted to do. I, I think we're living in the right place. Yeah. For all its warts and pimples. I, I totally agree with that. Um, I wanted to bring up something again on what we talk about this occasionally, that there is a government program right now that, um, that there are limitations on, but is paying extremely exorbitantly high interest rates and it's government approved in every direction. You have to go to the government website to look at it. That's uh, Series I, Savings Bonds from the U.S. government, uh, treasurydirect.gov. There are limitations. You have to leave it untouched for a year. There's a limit on how much an individual can put in for a year, 10,000 per individual per year. But their rate right now that that they are paying 
to those that have an I bond going from um, July through uh, December is 9.62%. That's an annualized rate. That is an annualized rate, right. but it's paying that during that annualized mm-hmm. rate during the period from July to December. That's significant, and it's gone from a 7.2% rate, so it's it's gone even up from there. Having money in there is, uh, I mean, when you put 10000 in, if you had that rate for a year on a $10,000 purchase, you're talking about $962 paid an interest on a guaranteed loan from the government. Now, you have to hold it without touching it for a year, and then once you've had it in there for a year, you if you touch it, you lose a quarter's interest. So there are limitations. But if people are saying, I'm sitting on too much cash and I don't need this much cash, you go ahead and go there and say, hey, if you don't need it over the next year, and you have limited need for it over a period beyond that, it's paying far more than the highest FDIC-insured high-yield savings position. So the limitations are there. We've mentioned it on the air before. It's worth looking into if you have an excess anywhere from $1 to $10,000 to invest. And we've got lots, lots more to talk about. Mortgages, houses, the housing market in general. We're seeing some shifts finally. This uh, the, the growing echo across everything for the last several years has been housing prices are going up and they're going up and they're going up. Is it a bubble? What's going on? Well, interest rates have risen significantly and the number of homes being purchased has dropped, which hasn't made the prices come down, but the number of houses whose price has come down has risen. I know I've just said that didn't make houses house prices go down, so the number of houses whose prices went down, that doesn't make sense. The average is a still rise in value, but the number of houses in that average whose price has come down is larger and it's growing. Um, the number of houses coming onto the market to be sold also jumped in April. What does that mean? Well, people looked around and saw that if I'm going to sell my house, I better do it now before interest rates get too high on mortgages. So when new houses are coming onto the market, that tends to be, make it more negotiable for the, for the buyer And when interest rates are going up, that tends to say the buyer can't afford as much house. So we're starting to see in some areas of the country, housing prices actually start to come down. This is one of those things that people talk about, but they're not making any more real estate. Housing prices always go up. No, no, they don't. Housing prices can and do go down. Anybody that was alive 15 years ago uh, that was old enough to remember it, knows that housing prices can go down significantly. So there are still places where we don't expect the housing prices to come down for a while. Central Texas along the I-35 corridor, around Denver, uh, around Boston, probably not. 
but places like San Francisco and Manhattan and parts of New York are already seeing the prices come down. So it has a lot to do with how high the prices were to begin with uh, and how many people are moving to an area. New York's population is shrinking. California is having very strange demographics and that San Francisco's population has definitely shrunk. Well, Texas's population is growing and that means if you look at the growth areas, you look at the amount of supply they have on, and if they've got a limited supply, prices are likely going to keep going up. So that includes Denver and Boston and Austin. Uh, Portland, not so much. Uh, San Francisco, not so much. So those are big pieces of news. People have been chortling and happy about prices going up all over the country those same people will be sad. Those of us that are looking at it and saying, well, houses shouldn't be what you base your retirement on unless you're a professional house investor, it's coming back to reality. Uh, so just expect that trend to continue as interest rates continue to go up. And we're about out of time. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.